You're listening to the West Side Podcast, a part of the L.A. International Church of Christ Family of Churches, worshiping God in L.A. since 1989. All right, great to see everybody. Let's open up, uh, open up um, I'd like to open up my thoughts with a prayer. Let's go ahead and bow our heads. Father, thank you so much for our time, our time to be here on earth, our time to know you, our time to worship, our time to try and find you. And God, I pray you bless this time, this worship service. We think of um, just all the moving pieces that are going on in our lives, all the things that we're trying to juggle, all the things that we're trying to learn and do and change. And I know most of us, we uh, honestly get really overwhelmed. And I hope that uh, our service this morning uh, does a couple of things. One, that we can just really honor and respect and bow down before you. We know that all good things come from above. We know that you created the world and the universe and, and, and each and every one of us in our mother's wombs. And Father, we just want to respect and uh, love you and, and thank you for that. And Father, just bless this service, our time to uh, uh, be together and encourage one another and spend a little bit of time reflecting on our lives and our relationship with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, three weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, I did a sermon um, called Kadosh, which is the Hebrew word for holy. We talked about uh, that passage in Isaiah 6, holy, 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 and how the Jews would open up their prayers with um, uh, reciting these prayers uh, and remembering, and this is sort of the idea behind the Sabbath, that every day... Uh, that every week we would take a day to stop and not do work so because people were tired and hungry. No, because people needed to stop and reflect on what makes them distinct and different, uh, to reflect on their relationship with God, to reflect on their life, uh, to think about um, where they were at in life. And we come together on Sundays to worship, but we've missed that kind of thing that the Jews still very much do that I think we need to um, honor and respect and think about, uh, again, how do we stop and reflect about our lives and have our own sort of personal Sabbaths, if you will. And we know that Paul says in Hebrews 4, uh, make every effort, make every effort to enter into his rest, and that word is Sabbath. How do you enter into his Sabbath? Uh, how do you enter into that place that's different from the rest of Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and bills and tests and traffic and eating and whatever else that we do every single day? And to remember that being a Christian, having faith, worshiping God does very much make us distinct, unique, and different. And that we need to be careful as Christians not to fall into ruts and routines and formalities and it's just Sunday and it's just come to church or it's just a quiet time or it's just reading or it's just time with a brother or time with a sister. Those are all sort of soul killers. And uh, we're trying to stay away from that kind of thing. And so as we've come, we, my family, we've really fallen in love with the West Side again. 
And being here has been just a joy and a blessing. And it's made me think again a lot about, yeah, this is where it began for me. What does being a Christian mean? What is really meaningful? What is special about having a faith? Uh, how does that make us different from the rest of the world? That's not just going to church a lot. Because many of us just go to church a lot, but that's not the goal. The goal is real transformation. The goal is real worship. The goal is finding something that really is spiritual that, that you connect to. And so you'll understand, I think, a little bit in my fourth or fifth slide why True North is the title of our sermon here this morning. But um, going forward, I've got three simple things that I hope you take away from our time today about worship. Uh, one, I think worship should elevate us. Worship should elevate us. And again, I mentioned that in the uh, sermon a couple of weeks ago when the Jews would do this um, uh, meeting Friday night before Sabbath and do their prayers. Holy, holy, holy. The third time you would say holy, holy, kadosh, kadosh, you would stand up on your toes. I don't know. Dink would know this better than I. I don't know if everybody does this. Um, but you stand up on your toes because that changes your perspective. Holy, holy. And you say, holy. And now I'm different. Now I'm set apart. So there's something about worship that should elevate us, lift us up out of where we normally are. Uh, worship, I think, should have a clarifying effect on our lives. We all get really confused. We all get lost in our heads. We all struggle. Uh, worship should be the thing, the vehicle, the process that helps sort of sift out and clarify who and what I am and what's really important in life. And it should have this clarifying effect. And obviously, uh, it should really inspire us. Um, you know, there was an old far side um, comic and, you know, the picture is these guys in heaven and they're singing. I think they're singing holy, holy, holy. And there's a little counter on the side and it says like one million three hundred and seventy seven time of holy, holy, holy. And the guys are sitting in the back and, and he says, so he leans over to the other guy. He says, I should have brought a magazine. Right. And that's sort of the joke um, that that worship doesn't just become, again, routine has become a bore. Uh, is there anything interesting about it? Obviously, worship should be the thing that greatly inspires us, that greatly inspires the soul. Okay, so I used Isaiah 6. Uh, uh, Ken uh, preached last time, last week, on uh, John 4. And uh, so our third one was to use Romans 12. We wanted to use Romans 12. We referenced this passage a lot, but I wanted to spend a little more time and develop Romans 12, uh, verse 1 and 2. Let's go ahead and read this. Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true act of worship. And again, I want you, I hope you can hear that as if you're hearing it for the first time. As a young Christian, I always thought of worship as just singing. You go to church and you sing, that's when you worship. 
and I was a horrible singer, many have referenced me as something like tone deaf. Some of you saw the movie Tommy Boy growing up, right? And I always ask them, did you eat a lot of paint chips growing up? And uh, people ask me things like that. Do you know what tone deaf means? You know, have you, has anybody ever said tone deaf? I, yeah, no, I don't know. So, yeah, get through the worship. That part makes me struggle. I've got to survive that. And hopefully we get to, uh, you know, some Bible, some teaching. Maybe I can get something out of church. But no, this was really transformative for me because he says worship is about how you live your life. Yeah, 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 we're worshiping Sunday mornings with each other. We come together for worship services. We know that Jesus says where two or more are gathered in my name, my spirit will be there. So, you know, I think we're a long way away from uh, church buildings and formalized clergy with robes and, uh, you know, the whole nine yards, that kind of, we've come a long way from that. But again, I think still most of us have a lot to learn about a life that you really equate with worship. My whole life, what I, what I do, that's my worship. Learning how to, uh, you know, get over myself and become more like Jesus, what would Jesus do in this math class? What would Jesus do in this club? What would Jesus do at my job? What would Jesus do in my home? Can I see Jesus in my garage? How would Jesus be on my street? i got to go to the coffee shop and get some coffee. How would Jesus do that? It's this kind of thinking. Right? And so this is going to require right a whole lot of transforming of how we think. How do you think about yourself? You know, it's sort of interesting. A lot of us, we, we, we ask and talk about sort of who and what we are racially or ethnically. Like, oh, you know, what are you? And, uh, you know, I've got this a lot. I've had people ask me if I'm uh, Chinese, Korean, um, Filipino, American Indian, uh, uh, white, um, uh, blah, 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 long list. Um, um, I'm one of those mutts. I'm one of those mutts that sometimes causes some confusion. But I was born in Honolulu, in Hawaii. And so people at school, when I was a kid, that always asked me, oh, yeah, yeah, what are you? And I, I'm, a, I'm a Hawaiian. I'm Hawaiian. Wow, cool, Hawaiian. Yeah, you know, primo beer and surfing and Hawaiian, Hawaii. And people would come up to me and they're like, hey, I heard you're Hawaiian. Yeah. Totally, I'm Hawaiian. <laughs> I was born um, at Queen Kapiolani Hospital, so I'd say that all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Queen, I'm from the Queen. Queen Kapiolani, yeah. I'm Hawaiian. And maybe in eighth grade, middle school. Somewhere in middle school, my best friend came over, and uh, my mom was there in the kitchen, and she says, Yeah, you know, Todd's the only guy at the school. My mom's Jackie. T- Jackie, Todd's the only guy at the school that's Hawaiian. My mom looks at me and she goes, you moron, why are you telling everybody you're Hawaiian? I am Mexican. Native American Mexican. That's what we are. I go, we are? (laughs) When did that start? (laughs) Did we just do that? No. No, do I have to tell you everything? I was like, 
Yeah? Maybe so. Here, in this case, yes. In this case, yes. Okay. Grandma's Native American, Grandpa's Mexican, they had the war, blah, blah, blah. That's what we are. I'm like, uh, thanks for clarifying. So then my friend looks at me and he goes, it's kind of cooler being Hawaiian. I go, yeah, well, I don't know, you know, this is life. But, you know, so you sort of, uh, you know, now we're taking DNA tests and... Um, was it Robert Carrillo? I think Robert did this and shared about this five or six years ago. You know, Robert Carrillo speaks Spanish from, from uh, you know, very first-generation Mexican. And he did his thing, and he's like, I can't remember what it was now. I'll butcher this. He's like five, 50% Irish or something like that. He goes, yeah, I would never know it, right? I'm Robert Carrillo, Mexican mom, Mexican dad. But my genetics, I'm 50% Irish. You know, so he went back and this sort of thing. So uh, this is all sort of interesting. Yeah, where do we, where do we come from? Who are we? Uh, 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 changing how we view ourselves. Let me read verse uh, 2. Sorry, Johnny Appleseed did not um, quote this. That's Romans 12.2. I love it. You never know what's going to say, but not so. Okay, that's Romans 12.2. He says... Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Think about how we all conform. Ooh, politics is a tough topic right now. So if you're in a social situation and politics come up, most people are sort of trying to measure the room really fast. Is this a red room or a blue room? Uh, you know, and we're trying to figure out which way the wind is blowing um, when we have these discussions. Um, R.D. Lang, R.D. Lang was a psychiatrist, worked with kids and a lot of um, mentally ill in the 60s. He wrote a book in the 60s, late 60s called The Divided Self, The Divided Self. He said, everybody goes through this thing in time, in life, you're going to feel uncomfortable you're going you're gonna to be in a setting and you're going to feel uncomfortable. Some people feel uncomfortable in their homes. And what happens is the self splits. Sort of split. And your true self sort of goes and hides somewhere. But this false self emerges. And the false self is very conforming. And the false self usually does something that, you know... Um, is trying to please mom or dad or teachers or coaches or bosses or whoever feels you feel threatened by. So we conform because we feel threatened, not accepted, and we become somebody else. So that's the pleasing false self. Or the performing false self. Well, you know, I noticed when Billy got A's, everybody seemed to get excited about that. And they thought he was awesome. So I'm going to perform. I'm going to do something like that too. Because then people will accept me. Or or I'm going to look a certain way. Or I'm going to talk a certain way. Or I'm going to do certain things so that I can get acceptance. So that I can be included in something. Um... Uh, you know, I was confused growing up. I think most of us can relate to this sort of thing, right? So I did two years as kind of in the punk rock crowd. Alan Pellerin's out here somewhere, and he did a couple of years of this. Alan was actually in a punk rock band, so you got to ask him about this, right? And the punk rockers were pretty funny. They were uh, anti-conformists. And so whatever the rules are, we don't like the rules. And nobody's going to tell us how to live. 
And whatever you're doing is stupid and we're not doing what you do. And we all got these mohawk haircuts and these black leather jackets and these cut up jeans and we draw all these um, bands on them, circle jerks and the dead Kennedys and um, all these cool bands and we had our shoes and beat up our boots and they look really nasty and put some chains on and all these sorts of things. And it didn't take long to figure out, um, wow, here we are in the anti-conformist group and we all look exactly alike. Like, there's no reggae guys in here. And there's no pop people, and we all very much look alike. How did the anti-conformist group become the most conforming kind of group that there is out there? So that was a little bit of an awakening. You go, yeah, we all do these things to try and not conform, but then conform. So conformity, false self, pleasing and performing, has tremendous shape on who we all become as people. Um, you know, I grew up in, uh, in a home with uh, a lot of addiction, a lot of alcoholism. That puts you in a, in a state of not very safe here. And you become somebody different to survive. You become somebody different uh, to get by. You become somebody different in the house. Maybe, maybe when you get out of the house, you can kind of be yourself. Uh, some of you understand that. Many of you understand that kind of thing. Uh, some of us grew up in households where there was abuse. And in abusive households, yes, you have to become, there's a lot of threat. You have to become somebody different. You have to conform quickly or you're not going to survive. A lot of our students, um, again, there's a lot of social pressure to conform, to look a certain way, to talk a certain way, to be a certain way, and to not do that is terrifying because maybe you wouldn't be accepted. Maybe people would think of you as weird or strange. Maybe, would th- maybe you would sense that not fitting in, you wouldn't fit in, and that would be a terrible experience. But now's the time to really be thinking about how conforming, how we've conformed in the past, and how conformity has shaped us away. Because the whole point is conformity is a soul killer. And if you're going to really worship, that was John 4, what uh, Ken was doing last week, if you're going to really worship and spirit and truth, and that's why we're here, not to conform and fit in. We're not here to check boxes. Nobody's taking attendance. No disciple points in heaven for being here or not being here. We're here to, to do a spirit, and we want to worship in spirit and truth. That's an incredible experience. That's what we're all starving for. That's what we all hunger for, to really know Him and connect and worship in spirit and truth. And that kind of thing changes you, changes your mind, changes how you think. Let me just do a minute here real fast. So he says the world is trying to get you to conform, and we know that. The world is trying to, right now as we sit here today, the world very much has a plan in which you conform into its rules. And you need to be very aware of that and be rejecting of those messages. You know, the world uh, very much became different during the Enlightenment. Man is going to be freed up. He's not going to be sort of enslaved mentally. He's going to sort of pick himself up by the bootstraps, use a little science use a little literature, use a little art, and we're going to be a totally transformed people. But you know what also happened during the Enlightenment? The Napoleonic Wars. And so we see history, what happened during history, uh, uh, how has it 
coincide with what's being taught and what the beliefs of the... Well, it didn't really free people up. It didn't really change people that much. We've always been warring, and the Enlightenment didn't make us war any less. And we didn't really become any more um, um, uh, violent or murderous towards each other after the Enlightenment. The Industrial Revolution promised um, um, uh, uh, these great machines um, that were going to make our lives and our cultures a lot more powerful and a lot more efficient. We were going to be able to have uh, light up our cities and have um, electricity. And we're going to be able to communicate electronically. We're going to be able to make um, boats and cars and streets and buildings and, 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 and the industrial, because of the industrial revolution. Man is going to be so different. His, her experience is going to be so much better. We're not going to be sort of enslaved to darkness and uh, we'll, be a little more, we'll be a little more civilized because of, um, you know, modernism, industrial revolution. Quick little article here. 37 who saw murder did not call the police. For more than half an hour, 38 respectable, law-abiding citizens in Queens watched a killer stalk and stab a woman in three separate attacks in Kew Gardens. Twice the sound of their voices and the sudden glow of their bedroom lights interrupted him and frightened him off. Each time he returned sought her out, and stabbed her again. Not one person was telephoned. The police during the assault, one witness called the woman, uh, one witness called after the woman was dead. That was two weeks ago today, but Assistant Chief Inspector Frederick Lewis, blah, 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 uh, 25 years, he's still shocked, the police investigator. He can give a matter-of-fact recitation of many murders, but the Kew Gardens slain baffles him, not because it's a murder, but because the good people failed to do anything to help. As we've reconstructed the crime, he said, the assailant, the assailant had three chances to kill this woman during a 35-minute period. He returned twice to complete the job. If we'd been called the first when he first attacked, the woman would not be dead now. This is what the police say happened at 3.02 a.m. in the um, New York suburb. Changing, flipping page. 28-year-old Catherine Kitty uh, Genesee, who's also called Kitty by everyone in the neighborhood, was returning. She turned off the lights of her car, locked her door, and started to walk 100 feet to the entrance of her apartment. The entrance to the apartment is in the rear of the building because the front um, is rented to retail stores. At night, the quiet neighborhood is shrouded in uh, darkness, blah, blah, blah. Um, nervously headed up the street. Uh, she got as far as the first street light, one street light. The man came up behind her, grabbed her, and stabbed her. Please, please help me. Oh, my God, help me. And from one upper window in the apartment house, a man called down, let that girl alone, and then closed his window. The assailant looked up at him, shrugged, and walked down Austin Street toward a white sedan parked a short distance away. Kitty struggled to her feet. Lights went out. The killer returned, now trying to make her, she was now trying to make her uh, way around the side of the building by the parking lot to get to her apartment, and he stabbed her again. I'm dying, she shrieked. I'm dying. 
Oh God, I'm dying. A city bus passed. Windows were opened again. The lights went on in many apartments. The assailant got into his car and drove away. Kitty staggered to her feet. City bus. 335. He returned a third time, or she returned a third time, trying to get into the building. She got into the building. She's laying on uh, the stairs, at the bottom of the stairs. He comes in a third time, stabs her a third time. At 3.50, a 70-year-old neighbor came down the stairs on his way to work, saw that she was dead, and finally, this is the first person then to call the police. That's the most heartless, uh, bizarre kind of story. But it's the kind of story the Christian has to read, uh, and especially our students, and realize, okay, are we really enlightened? Has the industrial age, has modernism really changed us? Are we really any different? How far have we come from Cain and Abel. Are we still in Cain and Abel? I think in a lot of ways we still are. And um, we know, again, modernism sort of takes, it's a whole other movement built on uh, the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution. And yet modernism has given us the most unbelievable ways of killing one another. As evidenced by World War One, World War Two, the Cold War, the Holocaust, and on and on and on. And now we're in postmodernism. And what does the world want you to think? The world wants you to think, okay, Enlightenment didn't really free us. Industrial age didn't really give us much heart. Modernism mm, sort of taught us how to kill each other. And we can still reject that. Or we need to reject that. There's not just one truth. There's many truths. But modernism, and it does recognize postmodernism, that modernism was very oppressive. Modernism, sexist, racist. Uh, tons of uh, systemic imbalance. Yeah, these are all noted. It's super important to realize these things. But no direction or rejection of direction is not a direction. And so I know we have some students that are going to think of themselves as postmodern and growing up in a postmodern age, but you still need a direction. You still need truth, and I'm going to say it with a capital T. We know that God created the universe and that the Christian faith is built on this truth and that Jesus was born of a virgin. And that he became a man and lived a sinless life. And that he raised from the dead and that he healed people and cured the sick. And that he died. A brutal death for you and for me. And rose again on the third day. And that's not relative. That's absolute truth. And our lives today and our act of worship. Our act of defining meaning in our lives is very much in a response to those facts there. What are you going to do with that truth? What are you going to do with God of the universe? What are you going to do with the world that he gave you? What are you going to, what are you going to do with the challenge and very much the gift of the cross? How do I respond? 
I need to respond. And rejection of direction isn't a direction. Postmodernism is okay as a commentary, but it's not, there's no real truth, there's no real meaning in it. You still have to make that for yourself, and that's what our faith does for us. Amen? Amen. Uh, this passage here in Romans 12, 1 and 2, talks a lot about schema and pattern. I'm going to sort of zoom through this. Mental maps. We all have mental maps. We call them internal working models. Um, these internal working models, these uh, mental maps, uh, very much exist in um, our unconsciousness, in the unconscious part of our minds. Why do you get so mad when you get mad? Why do you get so mad when you get mad? Why does, why does Jonah get so mad? Jonah gets so mad and God challenges Jonah, why are you so mad? Do you have a right to be so mad? Jonah, yes, I have a right to be mad. Whoa, falling off the stage. Because Jonah was a racist. He hated the Assyrians. He didn't want anybody from Nineveh to be saved. And when God saved the Ninevites, he was mad. So mad, it says, that he wanted to die. Wow, where did all that anger come from? He's been conditioned into that. That's in his mental map. That's in his internal working model. That's in his unconscious. We're the good guys and they're the bad guys. We don't want the bad guys. We want to beat up the bad guys. We want to defeat the bad guys. We're going to fight a war with the bad guys. And God says, no, you're going to go love the bad guys and save them. And Jonah gets mad because he's so upset about um, the world that he thought was supposed to be is not how God, how he sees the world is not how God sees the world. And so when we renew our minds, you have to dig down into some of your unconscious beliefs. You have to dig down into how you were uh, 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 conditioned, uh, how you grew up, your culture, your country. Are we really the good guys and they're the bad guys? Jesus never talks like that. Jesus never really talks like that. Does our country have enemies? Yeah, but Jesus says you still have to love your enemies. I believe in patriotism, right? When you see somebody burn the flag, I think a lot of people, especially if you've been in the military, you react to that strongly. That just seems unbelievably disrespectful and terrible. Um, I remember I'm a Dodger fan, and uh, the Dodgers playing the Cubs, and a guy runs out, one of the guys runs out, and he takes the flag, and he's going to burn the flag out in center field. And Rick Monday, Rick Monday runs over, he's the right fielder, he runs over, grabs the flag, and saves the flag. People were in tears in the stands, in tears. That's just a guy burning cloth. No, it means something, and we're all conditioned to respect that thing. It's a very powerful symbol. You see how these things work. Sorry for this last point here, too, but this is why, too, in church, we have to be careful how we deal with each other. Lots of times we look at depressed people, and we say things like, you know, sis, geez, can you just get happy? Right? Or we look at, we look at anxious people. We look at anxious people and we go, uh, yeah, bro, wow. Can you take a chill pill? Can you just chill out? Can you just chill out? You're just freaking out and you need to chill out. Can you stop? Take a hug and let's move on. So these cozy platitudes that we offer each other. You know, we've got some children that are difficult, all right? And bro or sis, we might look at the parent and just go, mm, you're not training your child well. You need to do better. That's not helpful. That's not helpful. 
you know, we look at people that are having all sorts of other struggles and we just say, get over it, do better, life's for the living, uh, blah, blah, blah. No, 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 that, Jesus never does that. You have to care about people and you've got to partner with people and you've got to go through life with people. We don't, we're not a place, church isn't a place where we just offer these cozy platitudes, do better. That doesn't help hurting people. That doesn't help hurting people. So in this passage in Romans, they're trying to change their mind. There's a lot they have to change. They're taught, they were taught to believe in false gods. They're believing in all these Greek gods that have become Roman gods. They were, they were taught to believe that they are better than everybody else. There is a lot of national pride. There is a lot of racism in Rome. Uh, they're taught to believe that Caesar was very much the son of God. They referred to Caesar as the son of God. And the fastest growing religion in Rome at the time was emperor worship. The worship of Caesar. That's the fastest growing religion at the time. And so Paul's got quite the challenge on his hands when he's writing this letter. You guys now are Christians and you're living in Rome. But to exist as a Christian, you're going to have to totally change how you think. I didn't grow up in the church. And some of you haven't. Maybe some of you have. And you learned how to curse. And cursing just became part of your language. That's a really hard thing then to change after you get become a Christian. Because a lot of times we curse, and we just curse because it's like good. It's how we talk, you know. Or the, my team won the game. I'm like, oh yeah, blah blah blah. <laughs> and the brothers go, wow, no, no, no. We don't talk like that. And you know that, but it's so unconscious. You're like, oh wow, embarrassment city. <laughs> Can't believe I said that in front of the Christian people. Sorry. I need to write down all my thoughts before I actually verbalize them. I'm going to get myself into trouble. Um, and they very much had a, an inflated sense of national pride. And that's why when Paul uses this phrase in Romans chapter 1, and he talks about the good news coming, he uses that word, eugelion. I did a sermon on this. We talked about this before. The good news, eugelion. This is what the Romans called uh, uh, out in the streets when they saw the soldier, the soldiers are coming to the city and they want to know they've been out in battle, is there good news? Have we won or lost? And if they'd won, they'd just yell, Eugelion. Everybody just starts shouting, Eugelion. Eugelion. Good news, good news, good news. And then Paul writes to the Romans and he says, Eugelion, Christ has come. Eugelion, you're different in Christ. Eugelion. Good news, we can go to heaven. Good news, we can all be brothers and sisters. Good news, there's hope for us. That he takes their phrase and writes to them this. This is just awesome. Okay, um, why is this important? True North, exploring the poles. In 1845, John Franklin set out from London, Northwest Passage, one of these guys that's going to go out and try and find the North Pole. It'd take him a couple years, two or three years. And for a two, three-year voyage, they took uh, a 12-day supply of coal. And 1,200-volume library. And a small organ. And china for the officers. And cut glass goblets. And silver flatware with the family crest on all the little spoon tips. Why did they do this? This sounds like you've gone camping before, right? You've got to make sure, you got to really make sure you've got the basics. You're going on a two-year journey to the Arctic to try and find the North Pole, and you bring 1,200 books. 
I'm a reader. But this is a mistake. Well, you know the story. They get, you know, Shackleton goes the other way. He goes north and they get frozen. And they just, the most horrific deaths, starving to death on the ice. And they found these men wandering around later, uh, dead. They all died. But there's these little camps, these little groups. And, and they'd have, uh, one of the guys took five of the silver spoons with them. And another guy's got two of the really book. The books were really actually very valuable. They had the gold sort of lettering on them and these sorts of things. And there's coins. Everybody's got coins. And they, and they, and they all died. They, they didn't bring enough food and they didn't bring enough coal and they didn't survive the winter. Because they're attached to, if we're going to go to the North Pole, we're British and there's a lot of this culture that goes into us. And there's a British way we've got to have tea time and we're going to be civilized. And the officers are going to get all this special treatment. And, and there's, and there's hot, this culture, this British culture. Yes, yes, we're going to the North Pole, but we're the British. And there's a way that the Brits, how we all do this thing together, and we're all going to die together on the ice. Stupid, absolutely stupid. Uh, later, Roald Amundsen, a Norwegian, makes it to the pole. And you know what he does? He lives with the Inuits for a couple of years. He totally gives up his culture and learns how the Eskimos eat and live and stay warm on the ice. And he becomes very successful at doing this thing. But in order to accomplish his goal, he's got to give up his culture. He's got to give up all these trappings that absolutely um, kill him and kill these, so many of these journeys. Um, to catch a monkey is not all that difficult because they're curious little creatures. And um, in a lot of places, uh, in places in China, places in India, I think this story actually comes from the Philippines, uh, to catch monkeys, you take a coconut and you cut it in half. You make a little hole that a monkey could put his hand in but not get his hand out of. And they're really curious. So you put any dumb little shiny object on the other side of the coconut. And the monkey puts his hand through the coconut hole and grabs the coin or the bottle cap, or the whatever, paper clip. And the trapper just walks up to the monkey, and the monkey's trying to get away. But the monkey doesn't, won't, will not let go of the little thing. And trapper guy just hits him on the head. He takes the monkey. It's super easy. And we are very similar in this way, aren't we? We all have our hand in a thing. And it seems really important to us. It's easy for us to laugh at dumb, Shack, uh, dumb Franklin with his 1,200 books and his china and his goblets of silver. And his, but we all got our hand through a coconut holding on to a thing that we don't want to let go either. And we think of Satan as this giant, overwhelming, and he's probably just, it's, this is, you guys make it really too easy. I don't have to try very hard. Let's put these little shiny things, and you put your hand through the coconut, and I just walk up to you. I just take my time. I just whack you on the head. It's so easy. It's so easy. 
And we just get lost because all the little shining objects in life that we don't want to let go of. We don't want to let go of, you know, how my family is supposed to look or how my school is supposed to look or how my job is supposed to look or how my bank account is supposed to look or how my car is supposed to look or this thing that I want and that thing that I want and that thing that I have that I'm never giving up. And we're not going to experience any real worship. What did Jesus have that he held on to like this? Nothing, because all he really held on to, my food is to do God's will. I have food that you know nothing about. And that's simply to do his will. And he was just so attached to this one thing. And this is the thing that makes him so special and so important. Remember when we did the sermon on Kadosh worship? I just want to remind you again, right? The prefix, W-O-R, uh, um, is, is about worth and worthy. And when we talk about worship, we are always evaluating what is it that's really worthy in my life. What is, what is it that I really value? And ship is references or uh, um, speaks to the state or the condition relating to the role, uh, roles that are in this place, right? Friendship, dictatorship, um, mentorship, leadership. Uh, so, so ship doesn't is not a boat. Ship is like the state of what happens and framing based on um, condition and roles and this sort of thing. So worship, the thing, the state that I enter because I have found the thing that is worthy of my attention in my life. And is that going to be a dumb little shiny object, or is that going to be the creator of the universe? And that's why we say kadosh. He is holy. And to worship is holy. And to set ourselves apart is an important thing that Christians do. And it helps us get to a worshipful state. And we don't just do worship on Sundays. This is what we've got to be practicing all throughout the week. Okay? So you're going to find this week something difficult. And you're going to want to do, um, um, you're going to want to escape. This is where a lot of our addictions start. This is where a lot of our uh, struggles start. There's, we're experiencing something we don't like. It's called history or math or English. And so instead of doing 30 minutes of math, I want to do four and a half hours of Call of Duty. Or instead of doing, you know, 40 minutes of a history assignment, I'm going to do seven hours of Instagram. That's it, right? Yeah, that's all. That's all. That's all. And so we're looking at something we don't like and we want to escape. We spend great quantities of time escaping. I want you thinking about what you do to escape. All of us have our escape mechanisms. You're not going to escape to heaven. You have to deal with your life. And to do that, you've got to be able to elevate yourself. That's what worship does. It elevates us. Gosh, I'm facing something and I don't like it. I need to stop and say a prayer for some strength so I can finish my math. So I can get through an addictive impulse. So I can not get angry at my wife. So I can deal with a deadline at work. That's worship. That's worship. And to not do that, we might just escape into something that ultimately just ends up being destructive for us. Worship's de- designed to elevate us. For time's sake, that's a great passage. Isaiah 40, verse 26. Uh, 26. Life is ten per- life, 10% what happens to you. 
90% how we react to it. You're all going to have stuff happen to you. That's only about 10% of life. 90% of life. How you react to the things that happen to you. You know, wives, maybe your husband's grouchy. That's like a 10% thing. Husbands, do we get grouchy? Yeah, I need an amen. I need a little more amen out there. Yeah, I need a little more amen. But she might spend 90% of her time being upset about this thing. Parents, we do this 10% of the time. Maybe the kid doesn't, isn't respectful, doesn't do a thing right. We all do this, right, kids? We don't perform right. 90, we'll spend 90% of our time as parents flustered and upset and kind of going bananas and figuring it all out. Ah, that's not good. 10% of time might actually be homework. The assignment itself, 90% being upset and why do I have to do this assignment and it's worthless and we don't do calculus. You just, why do you have to do, what am I going to do with calculus anyway? Just going to plug it into the computer and ask Google and it's going to give me an answer. Why am I going to spend 30 minutes doing the calculus? Stupid. But you might spend hours feeling like that when your assignment's only 10% of what happens. We all get confused. Clarity or clutter? Too much in the mind. How many things are in your mind right now? At any given moment, how many things are in your mind? Worship's got that great ability to be able where we can stop, we can clear your mind, where you can focus. Right? You're upset. You're upset with your spouse. You're upset with your child. You're upset with a boss. Wow. What did you do last week when you're upset with your spouse? What did you do last week when you're upset with homework? What did you do last week when you're upset at work? What if, think back now, what if you'd spent two minutes to pause and stop and slow down and think about the cross? Think about bloody hands. Think about mocking soldiers. Or stop and ponder about what your name literally looks like written in the book of life. Take a minute and just think about your name. Every single letter written in the book of life. Just take two minutes and think. Just take a minute and think about that. And now think about how you want to respond to your spouse or your child or your parent or your boss. It's going to be different. It's going to be different. That's worship. That's worship. It gives us clarity. Worship provides clarity. It helps open up our eyes. Paul's talking about this in Ephesians. I love this passage. One, I think, verse 16, 17. And our prayer, blah, blah, blah. And and that God would open, our prayers, that God would open the eyes of your heart. Your heart has eyes. Sometimes those eyes are blind. And sometimes they're just looking at the wrong things, little shiny things. And your hands are stuck in coconuts. And that's why you need this, you need a moment of clarity. Joseph Campbell says, we must let go of the life we'd planned. Let go of it. Let go of it. I wanted to be Magic Johnson. I thought I was going to be Magic Johnson. All I wanted was to be Magic Johnson. And it took me years. I just got over it. Just last year. Now what am I going to do? Now what am I going to do? Got to let go of the life you had planned so you can accept the one that's waiting for you. If you're not going to be Magic Johnson, good, accept it. Get over it. There's just one of them. Now you get to move on to be the thing that God really intends for you to be and to live the life that he has designed for you. That's super important. Thank you, sister. Thank you.
And I think many of us as Christians, we still have these expectations. We're going to have this sort of God's going to bless me and I'm going to have all this stuff. I don't know. Talk to Job. It didn't go that well for him. It didn't go like that. You don't know what he has planned for you. All you know is that you have him to go through it with you. And that makes all the difference in the world. And lastly, worship. Worship. It should inspire us. What inspires you? What inspires you? What is it that's inspiring? What is it that releases your soul? What is it that you get excited about? Where, where did, what gets your juices going, right? Worship is supposed to be inspiring, not instilling of boredom. And David says this in Psalm 27. You can just, just listen to his, the language he's using here. One thing I ask from the Lord, and this only do I seek, not all these little shiny objects, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. Wow, that's the king. He's got a lot of things going on, managing the system, managing the kingdom. We know things are not good at home. He's not doing enough time, and we can criticize him for that. But look at this mindset. This is great. One thing I, there's one thing that I want. I want you to leave here today thinking about this. The one thing that you want, the one thing that you want, and put this in there, that I might dwell in his house, that I might see his beauty. Right later in 29, he's going to talk about, he's going to use, I just want to touch your face like a baby touches a mother's face. All I want, I just want to touch your face. And you do, you get down to this one thing, not 19 things, not 12 things, not our big long to-do list. You need the one thing that organizes what's going on in your soul and that everything else like planets revolves, revolves around. This becomes a spiritual act of worship. And so at this time, we're going to have the singers come on up and uh, close us out with a song. But I really want us thinking this week about how you worship. Say a prayer. Go to a place. Get quiet. Or maybe go get real loud. Get alone. Or get with people you've never been with before. But organize your life. Prioritize these times where you get to stand up and say, Holy, 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 kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. And be separate and stand out and distinct because we worship an incredible God that gave us this awesome gift in His Son and has provided an incredible future for us. God bless you. Let's sing and worship together as we close in our final song. Amen. You've just listened to the West Side Podcast. For more information about our ministry, please visit thewestsidechurch.com or laicc.net.